you can follow the steps in learning to improve and not get anywhere. Um, the minute you go into a conversation and, and the teachers go, nope, <laughs> sorry, we're not going to do that. Um, and you're like, okay, so what does the book say about? <laughs> this is High Tech High Unboxed. I'm Alec Patton, and that was the voice of Derek Mitchell. This episode is a recording of a DEN talk at the Gates Foundation Network for School Improvement Fall 2022 Community of Practice event in San Diego. If the term DEN talk is new to you, it's basically a cross between a traditional panel discussion and eavesdropping on a really interesting conversation happening at the next table in a cafe. This particular conversation takes place between Derek, who you just heard, and Justin Cohen. It's moderated by Jennifer Husbands. Derek and Justin have known each other for years, and it's just a pleasure to hear them riffing off each other. About halfway through listening to this conversation, I was texting my colleagues trying to find out how I could get a copy of Justin's book. I just love this, and I'm so excited to be able to share it with you. Thank you so much for, for spending the next hour with us. I am honored to be here with my dear friends, Justin Cohen and Derek Mitchell. I think between the two of them, uh, it's about 30 years of friendship at least. So I uh, feel very lucky to be here with them, to, for all of us to learn more about this wonderful book, Change Agents, which focuses on the work of partners in school innovation, which Derek leads, and the book which was authored by Justin. So honored to be here with you guys. And they were kind enough to share a pre-release version of the book with me, so I have a read the whole thing and it's so good. Uh, so mostly this Den Talk will be a conversation between the two of them, but I do have a few questions, kind of get things started, um, and then we'll open it up to you all. So please uh, think, think about the questions that you have so that when we open that up, you know, we don't have two minutes of silence, you know, we can get, get right into it. So first, uh, I'd love for each of you to introduce yourselves and just share a little bit of the journey that literally brings you into this room today. Um, so either of you can start, I don't mind. Just use the mic because we're recording um, it with the hopes of uh, editing pieces of this to create a podcast uh, that will be shared by High Tech High through their Unbox Journal. So, um, so go for it. Thank you all for being here. Um, thank you to my friend Derek, my friend Jen. I'm just grateful to be with you both. This is such a joy. Um, so my journey um, starts in Camden County, New Jersey, just outside of Philadelphia, where I was born. Um, my mother was a special ed teacher. My grandfather was a superintendent. Um, they were like, you can be anything you want to be. Just please, please, God, do not go into public education. So that is exactly what I did. Um, and look, I was a white, middle, upper middle class kid with privilege in a public school in New Jersey, like that was designed for me, right? My mom was a teacher, like everything catered to every one of my whims and impulses. And uh, I you know, spent the first 10, 12, 13 years of my career in the education sector in nonprofit jobs. Uh, and right around 2012, when Trayvon Martin was killed, um, I began what became basically a midlife crisis of conscience around my own position in a world that was designed for me and that was like I discovered over the course of many years to be deeply oppressive to the people around me. And uh, I left the sector um, and um, spent the last 10 years really listening um, and trying to understand whether it was possible to get out of that matrix. Um, and I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> um, but what I do know is that from the day I was born and then in that 
last 10 years, the people who shaped my thinking more than anything else about what is right with this world are teachers. And um, this book is a love letter to them, as Derek has said a hundred times. Um, the, I spent a lot of time listening to teachers, to parents, to kids about what we were getting right and wrong in public schools. And I, not all of my thinking is in this book, but a lot of it is. Um, and I'm grateful to Derek and the team at Partners in School Innovation for letting me be creative with how we told the story of the work they do with educators. Um, and we'll talk much more about it, but suffice it to say, I think that if we are going to really think about our culture transforming as a whole, I don't just mean schools, I, and I, we are at a deeply problematic place in our country and our world right now. Um, and if we do not empower our educators to be liberators, we have no chance. Um, and that's what I hope, at, at heart, this, this book is about and this project is about. Uh, thank you, Justin, and, and uh, Sister Jen Hart, as you know. Um, thank you, everybody, for being here to, to, to listen to this conversation and maybe even participate a little bit in it if we can manage how to do that. Um, I'm Derek Mitchell. I'm a CEO of Partners. Been at this work at Partners for 13 years, 14 years, but I've been doing the work of helping schools better serve kids who look like me since I was in middle school. I mean, honestly. Um, uh, I've pretty much broken or challenged every infrastructure of every school I've ever attended because they just weren't organized to, to meet my needs. And, and I was the kind of kid who was like, well, if you're not going to meet them, I'll meet them someplace else. <laughs> um, which to them meant I was disobedient and, you know, um, truant and, I mean, all the things, you know, they like to uh, describe us as um, when we aren't getting our needs met there and finding some other outlets uh, for it. Um, grew up in Chicago, inner city, south and southwest. Shut down in the hizzy, in the hizzy. Um, and, uh, and all of you probably have a sense of what uh, Chicago is like, but uh, I'll just characterize it by saying that the Secretary of Education at the time, and I was in middle school, called Chicago the worst public school system in the country. Um, and uh, ironically, at the time when he said that, I was having a great experience <laughs> in my school. <laughs> um, and I'm reading the paper and going, what? You know, who, what school did he visit? <laughs> to make that statement. Um, but I had the opportunity to, to, uh, to go from Chicago um, to a private school in, out in Connecticut, a place called Taft. Um, and uh, then I kind of understood what he was talking about. Because uh, I went from a place that pretty much was desk chair consoles, chalk most of the time, paper until about March, um, and uh, chapters of books Xerox copied and handed out because no one's gonna spend money on books for kids like us, um, to a place that was ridiculously abundant. And I mean ridiculously abundant. I lost a book, they gave me another one. Um, there, honestly, no, no skin off anybody's nose. It was like, oh, of course, here. <laughs> um, you could eat all day, all day. Uh, and, uh, and so I'm ex experiencing this incredible learning space that's, you know, rolling hills of green grass and 
Um, red brick buildings look like castles. Uh, and I'm thinking to myself, why can't we have this in Chicago? Right? Um, and I've pretty much been trying to answer that question uh, for, for the rest of my career. Um, uh, Justin and, and, and Sister Jen described this book as a book about the partner's work, but it's really a book about all of our work. It's a book about coaching um, for equity, and it tackles the hardest parts of doing this work that for some reason has, have been you know, sort of excluded from everybody else's books, which is how do you build the will to do this work? Um, uh, how do you create the relationships that sustain themselves in the hard times of, of actually challenging you know, um, equity among your colleagues uh, uh, in schools that are heavily and, more, and extraordinarily challenged? And all of us are tackling this problem, but you know, the tomes about this work often you know, stick with the upper level, you know, uh, above the green line pieces, the structures, the tools, the processes, the, you know, the skills, and none of the actual really meaningful and thoughtful work um, of having hard conversations um, and sustaining yourself when you're, when you're being faced with a set of colleagues who basically say you're a racist if you want to desegregate data. Um, so these stories are, are the stories of the actual practitioners. I mean, I think uh, the name of Partners in School Innovation in the narrative of the book appears twice. <laughs> so, it, and the story are told by the actual teachers and leaders who are tackling this work in five different uh, communities around the country. And so you, when you read it, you'll hear yourself, you'll see yourself, you'll hear your clients, um, and recognize what you see. Thank you so much. So it's a book, and so I have kind of a two-part question for you, which is why, why a book? You know, it could have been a journal article, it could have been a documentary film, it could have been a lot of things. So one question is why a book, and then why this book, right? You've already started to touch on that, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about um, sort of why this book and, and what is some of the impact that you hope that, that a book like this might be able to have. Yeah, so if, uh, raise your hand if you're a leader in another nonprofit like ours um, that's supporting schools and districts. I highly recommend you consider um, a book about your work. And honestly, I'll stick around after. You want to talk about how the heck did we get this resourced and all that kind of stuff, and I can, I can just share our experience with it. Um, for me, it was, there were really four reasons. I, I started the first, which is that the, the really meaty work is missing from everyone else's books. Um, and uh, you, could, you can follow the steps in learning to improve and not get anywhere. Um, the minute you go into a conversation and, and the teachers go, nope, <laughs> sorry, we're not going to do that. Um, and you're like, okay, so what does the book say about... <laughs> resistance and it doesn't say anything about it um, and so um, and so we 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 partners has had an aspiration for a book for a very long time it, it was an asp it was on the list of to do's when I was hired just to give you an idea of how long the org has wanted a book about its work um, and I was hired in 2009 um, and uh, and my first thought was well there's a lot of books about school and school transformation. Why would we do one? Um, and so we started gathering, you know, the books that are that have informed our own work. You know, um, Zoretta Hammond, 
uh, I mean, the list goes on and on, and, and they're all referenced in the, in the chapters too, um, and started figuring out, okay, so what's actually does partners have to contribute to this tome, this, this knowledge base that's out there already? And it was clear it was in the work of partnering itself, right? The, 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 the work of, um, of matching um, your acumen, your skill, your knowledge to the needs of your clients in the work. Um, and, so, and so we then started to write that book. And it, we started in 2014, and it was all of us in the organization writing chapters and moving it around. And it ended up being this thick. And we couldn't even get staff to read it. <laughs> um, honestly, it was an encyclopedic, you know, uh, kind of mishmash of uh, of uh, very dry and uninteresting <laughs> uh, stuff. And who knows, we may end up you know, publishing it and it'll go into you know, university you know, uh, places. Um, and so we started rethinking the whole overall idea. Um, and we decided that we wanted to tell the stories of the folks trying to tackle this work um, on the ground. Um, and that's when we sort of ripped out the, the thought that it needed to be driven by partners because we don't even drive the work in the schools. We're, it's their wheel we're putting our shoulders to. Um, and so the book is, is literally uh, constructed with that idea. Yeah, I, I would just say stories are stickier than jargon. And we use a lot of jargon in our field. And um, every chapter in this book is anchored in the story of real people um, using their real names with one exception. And that's a separate story. But um, the, and like, it's real people doing hard stuff. Like, there's a whole story in here about a fishbowl where, like, a bunch of white teachers, like, push back on being called racist. And then, like, they have to come back the next day and deal with the fallout. Like, that's what happens. That is what actually happens, right? It is not, like, it's not like, oh, we did the driver diagram and then things got better. Like, that's not how it works. <laughs> so, so we wanted to describe how it happens and, like, what's likely to go down if you try to do hard shit. And so that is, that's what the book is about. Um, so primarily it was about telling stories so that people would remember it and not just think that they can have jargon inform their practice. Um, the second thing is, you know, one thing that you and I have talked about a lot is just democratizing access to this work. Right. Um, improvement science is a very academic thing. Like, let's be honest, like, it, the, the jargon isn't inviting a lot of the time. Um, and if you, and just saying, like, improvement science sounds like it's like, oh, God, like, it's like people talk about white supremacy culture. Like, I don't know anything that sounds more white supremacy culture than improvement science. But, <laughs> sorry, but, I mean, I'm not, no knock on it. I love improvement. So my best friends are improvement scientists. But, like, the, the, <laughs> But the, but the, but the, that the vibe was like, how do you do something that la allows your average classroom teacher to sit down with this and read it? Like my mom was a teacher for 45 years and I wanted her to look at this and be like, after retiring because no child left behind messed me up. <laughs> like I can feel good about this profession again. For me, it was also the question of um, the lived experience of teachers who repeatedly have the ground put on from under them, <laughs> right? So there's a story in here of a teacher who prepared all summer, first year teacher, you know, to teach in a particular grade level, and two weeks in, she switched to a whole other grade level, um, yeah. and she's like, what the you know, heck? Uh, and she, <laughs> and she's in this. She was, she's from Michigan. She actually said, what the heck? Right. <laughs> and, and she finds she's in a grade level with folks who don't want to do what is needed for the very kids that they're serving. Right, because a class was, is all kids of color, 
many of whom with language issues, and she's recommending things, and her grade level are like, nope, and you're the interloper, you're the young whippersnapper, no. And so she's in this weird space where she feels responsibility for not just the 28 in her classroom, but for, the, but for all the other kids who need a different instructional model that what her, her colleagues are actually advocating for without the means to make that change. Um, and so you, you literally follow her story of how she actually got her colleagues on board for the kind of change that she needed and then, and then routed that change up the chain you know, through her system. Um, this, is, this is the hard and the real work um, of, uh, of this book and of the work that we're all doing. And that's why we call it Change Agents, right? Because she became more than just what folks think of as a teacher in that, in that paradigm. She shifted and became an actual agent for change. Um, and her impact was tremendous uh, in her system. But just one early career teacher, right? What one person you know, with the right tools and the right skills and a little bit of support can actually accomplish tremendously powerful things. Right. And in the process, she gets shut down, right? Like, there's... Repeatedly. There, repeatedly. <laughs> and, and, the, and there's this whole narrative about the, like, the fourth grade team at the school versus the fifth grade team. The fifth grade, it seems like the grizzled old teachers. And the fourth grade team is like the young upstart teachers. And like, every time the fourth grade team is like, let's try something new, the fifth grade teacher is like, nah. Like, and, and so, like, what do you do with that, right? And like, there's a whole chapter about change management and culture building in a context where nobody wants to do anything. And like, just, and, and I think, you know, we, we thought about the teacher workforce in America, right? Predominantly white, predominantly female. Um, and with huge generational gaps right now that are only going to get more pronounced uh, given the boomers exiting the workforce. So you basically have the situation where you have a lot of teachers who are at the end of their careers who are like grizzled. And a bunch of younger teachers who are not yet there, but like within a few years after COVID of just getting knocked around by the system, they will be. And so what do you do? Can you do something that reaches both of those poles? Um, and everybody that doesn't fit into those paradigms. And like, how do you do that? Um, is that possible to do? It has to be if we're gonna do anything about our schools. Okay. Helpful, thank you. So the book, Does it is your question. Oh yeah, yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. We're good, we're good. Um, so book is here. It's a different kind of. It's really about that adaptive work, you know. And I think I might have learned that term from my NCS colleagues. Uh, not the technical work, you know, which you can pick up learning to improve. That's the technical work. This is about the adaptive work. Now that it is out there, it's out here. How do you imagine people can use it? Uh, what are some of the sort of use cases? You know, how do we how do we turn it from you know a book into practice that spreads across the country? Yeah, uh, Justin did a brilliant thing in how he organized it. Um, so every every their their chapters are paired, right? Um, and uh, and and there's sort of uh, a, a crescendo of angst. In, in one chapter, and a path toward resolution in the next one, right? And so, it, so it, 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 when you read it, it feels like a roller coaster ride, the way that a you know an action movie might feel, you know, where you're where you're facing new challenges and and then seeing resolutions for it. Um, but one real powerful way to use it is in you know basic uh, learning professional learning communities where you pair the chapters and actually talk about them together in relationship to the work that's happening on the ground in your school, in your district. He also did this uh, funky thing that I challenged at the start, but turned out to be, I think, a brilliant move, is uh, he put key questions to ask yourself at the end of every chapter. 
right? Um, that helps the readers be reflective about their own context as a result of the experience of the teachers and leaders that they're, they're listening to and reading about. Um, and then he offers resources, right? If you want to tackle something like this in your school, here's some places to start. And they're not all partners' resources. They're, they're things we've used from other places that are all referenced there. So in a sense, this is a kind of unbundled um, uh, uh, strategy for, the, for folks on the ground in schools to do this work themselves without the need for all of us. Um, and I, I firmly believe that there's a, a, a change agent in the making in every school um, in our country, probably dozens of them, right? Um, they just need to be empowered, be respected well enough, um, and then, of course, commit themselves, you know, collectively and individually to making it happen. If we are able to make, find enough folks to do that, um, the book might be a key way to catalyze those folks, right? That's, that was one of my main uh, 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 motivations, is that one teacher in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, right, whose school is getting increasingly diverse over time and who's figuring out that doing what's worked before is not going to work, you know, for this other set of kids and wants to know how to actually execute that pivot for both her own instruction and then for the school that she's serving. This is a tremendous resource um, for that teacher. I mean, we got to know each other at a time when one of the dominant themes in education policy was we have to import talent to fix schools. And this book is anti that. Yeah. This book is about there is amazing talent in every community, often underpaid black and brown folks who have been doing this work forever without calling it education reform. Um, and, and that if those stories have not been told with the same level of enthusiasm and funding that the stories of the imported talent has been told. So. Um, that, that, I think that hopefully that people can pick this up and be like, oh, I know that, that principle. Like that's Mrs. So-and-so down the street who's been doing this without any credit, you know, credit for the last 25 years. Right. And just to make it a little bit more crystal for you, when, <laughs> when, when, when Justin and I met, he was one of Michelle Ree's sharpest tools for producing charter schools in... in no, no, no. In, no, 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 no. I was working <laughs> in DC. She was trying to compete with the charter schools. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and I was responsible for innovation schools in Prince George's County, Maryland. And so we shared that little bit of barrier, you know, uh, D.C. and Maryland, which probably should be one district. But, you know, because they're from different states, you know, they were. And we realized that we shared a lot more than just our ideas about having schools be more robust, more innovative, more, more successful places. We shared parents, yep. <laughs> often kids. Um, uh, and so we started a conversation about, okay, why, why does this in, you know, sort of inorganic barrier between our places keep us from collaborating, learning from each other, and, 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 and working together? Um, and so when I was thinking about who should write this book, because Justin described his, his uh, sort of crisis of, 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 of faith that then resulted in a different sort of mental model around how this work should go, because we were often like this. You know, in our conversations, <laughs> you know, we didn't, we love each other, but did not agree on very much at all. Um, but he's come to our side of the fence now. <laughs> well, I, I just want to say, Derek, Derek right. met me when I was much younger and much less likable than I am now. <laughs> and no, I'm just, and we've been friends ever. I mean, we were yes. always very close. Yes. And um, 
he, he has been right about this for as long as I've known him, and, and a lot of people have not. And a lot of other organizations and other people in the field, and not just Derek, but folks who have been working and in, in, in doing continuous incremental improvement, have not had a day in the sun in education policy for the last generation. It's been about splashy innovation that fizzles. Um, and you, to your credit, sustainable. yeah, have been on this right. for a minute. And so, and so when we say, you know, um, that, the, that the work comes from a place of understanding what doesn't work, um, we're talking about the fact that most of what we're asking schools to do, um, uh, you know, really from prior to Brown versus Board, but if we could just use Brown versus Board as, a, as, a, as the place where equity uh, needed to be, you know, uh, a core strategy in schools. We've changed expectations of schools two or three times every decade since then, right? Um, and we've never given schools and the leaders and teachers in these places the time to accommodate and learn what they need to to actually deliver on the incredible expectations that we have of them. Um, and so it's this weird situation where you're, where you're shifting the goalposts, you know, every couple of years um, and then blaming the very people who have to actually figure out how to deliver. Um, and so this, uh, this whole frame is different. The entire frame of this book is the solution to the work of, of transformational outcomes for poor kids of color and all kids already exists inside the schools where they are. It's there. That's where it is. And here's the thing. If it isn't there, it's not going to be anywhere else. <laughs> right? Because if you think about it, even the reforms that have seemed to work sustainably, the places that have done transformational sort of uh, whole school, you know, new models, the ones that have sustained have sustained because of what? Because teachers and leaders in those buildings sustain them. Right? Uh, and so it's, a, it's one of these strangest things where we, where we dismiss and disrespect the, the very thing that's going to make us all um, successful. And we wanted to up in that mental model. Yeah. Right. And the other, the other thing I think, the use case for the book, um, how do I say this? Um, anybody who is going to read White Fragility read it already, right? <laughs> like, I feel like the, the culture's <laughs> sort of... Zeitgeisty infatuation with anti-racism work as fad is over. Like um, people that were calling—I mean, we just had a session about this in this room before, where Ziamata was saying, you know, we got a ton of calls from people in 2020 saying we care about diversity and equity now, and you know, here we are two years out from George Floyd being murdered on television, and where is the uproar? Where is the where are the white folks newly radicalized to participate fully and every day in anti-racism work? It's not where it was and we are in a moment of backlash. Um, and so what are the other avenues for, candidly, radicalizing people? And there's a lot in this book. If you have not yet encountered real stories about the way your community was organized explicitly to exclude black people and brown people, like, that's in here. Um, it doesn't say that on the cover, like you know, it's because we want to sell copies in Florida and Texas, so we didn't put well, that right. That ship may have sailed. We want to get them. To, we want the teachers in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, to get access to it, right? And we, we we want the teachers in Alabama to have access to it, and they won't, you know, if 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 we put the wrong things on the cover. Yeah, right. That's yeah. just an awful statement of the society where we are yeah. right now today. Yeah. 
So I have one last question for you two, and then we're going to turn it over to this wonderful audience. So please think about what you want to ask. Um, so we've talked a lot about, you've mentioned sustainability in a couple different ways, but obviously, you know, this pandemic, not over. You know, like you said, backlash against racism, backlash against teaching actual history, you know, all of these things that are happening that are really scary, backlash against, you know, science, evidence, data, all these things. So we're all, we still are in a very tough spot. We have not had the chance to recharge batteries, you know, yet. So as we want to inspire change agents, find change agents, lift up change agents, how do we support their sustainability? How do, how do they sustain themselves? How do they sustain the work? How do they sustain their impact when they you know, inevitably move on, move up, move out? Yeah. Um, you know, what have you learned at Partners? What have you learned from the stories that you told in the book about how this kind of positive change can be sustained? Yeah, let me, let me start uh, that question first by reiterating the other reason for those of you who are leading organizations to, to, that I think would be really powerful to write books. Um, you, and it's gonna, I'm gonna drop a little uncomfortable knowledge on us about this, right? So all of us are orgs that are in some combination supported by philanthropy and fees, which means that the districts we serve are privileged because they have wealthy people willing to invest in us doing the work to help them get better. Not all districts have such privilege. And so, when I was thinking about uh, the sustainability of, of partners work um, and the, the coming Gates Cliff that we're all you know, uh, uh, gonna be implicated by or, or, or have to survive through, I started asking myself the question of how do we democratize what we know, right? Even if we can't get uh, coaches and, and, and tools into the hands of everybody, how can we get the knowledge of what we've learned in this time into the hands of, of more people so that, you know, when, when the funders move off to their next, you know, uh, 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 shiny bauble that they're going to invest in, there's a knowledge that's dropped that communities can pick up and, and carry forward on their own. And so the book is itself a sustainability strategy, right? Because it takes the core strategies of, of, of how to build your teams and, and build the will to do transformational equity work on the ground in your communities to scale. I mean, everywhere that book is, is you know, 15 years of partner's knowledge, you know, um, as expressed by the folks who are doing it, the teachers and leaders in the, in the schools and systems. Um, and so even if we're not able to sustain us, the ideas are gonna be sustained. Um, and the book is the mechanism for doing that. So seriously consider it, I think, because um, the, the, the waste of public education is that someone determined this and learned this 15 years ago and 15 years before that and 15 years before that and that knowledge was not accessible to us and so we had to relearn it. Uh, and so we're hoping, God, we're hoping that, you know, that we're solving new problems 15 years from now, <laughs> right? And not still trying to tackle this one. I mean, there's this part where in the book where we poke fun at Eurocentric hero traditions um, in chapter nine, and um, that's intentional because sustainability requires a collective, right? And this book is about collective work and not individual work. Um, there are no he individual heroes. There are no saviors. Um, there, are, um, there is nobody who's perfect. 
So you know, that I also think we're painting a realistic picture of what it takes. Collective effort among people working together against a common goal where everybody is flawed. Um, and, but does not ignore those flaws, mitigates them or works towards um, improving them. One of the, uh, the, 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 chat, the book titles we bounced around was Stop Waiting for Superman. <laughs> right? Um, just as a way to signal... Superman's that, not coming. Right. As a way of signaling that that entire mental model is wrong. It's yeah. built on white saviorism. It's, yeah, I mean, there's tons of things wrong with it. Um, and, and it inherently depowers the very, the very folks in context who need to be empowered to, to, to do the right work. Um, and so, of course, we didn't go with that title because it would have, you know, caused the, same, <laughs> the, the, the whole, I, I myself still think it would have been kind of fun. <laughs> it would have been kind of fun and, uh, uh, to be in a room like this. And Derek and, and I would have these conversations where Derek would call me and be like, I have nine things you need to change. <laughs> like, where he's like, where he's like, or nine things that I think are, and that we just go back and forth, like, because we both have strong opinions about some of this stuff and we're mostly aligned, but once in a while, I'd be like, do this different. Right. <laughs> Justin, Justin uh, really wanted to connect uh, education to its liberatory roots, yeah. um, which was not, you know, core in my heart at the time of, of producing the book. But as I read through the chapters and saw the connections that he drew with redlining and with, you know, the the, the civil rights movement and the leaders of those movements as educators. Um, I started to then think, oh my God, this, there's a long-standing tradition that teachers should know they're already a part of, right? Um, there's a reason why you know, uh, black folks used to be killed if they knew to read, right? There's a reason for that. Uh, it was, a, it was to, to keep the power of, of knowledge um, uh, from liberating them, right? That was, a, that was the purpose. And so teachers are inherently liberators. They're also all teachers cross difference, right? Every single one. You know, if you're a man, you're teaching women a lot of times, right? If you're middle class, you're teaching poor students or wealthy students. I mean, the, the list goes on and on, whatever vector of change. <laughs> you know, and so you are a teacher across difference. And stop thinking about yourself as, as, uh, as you know, uh, being someone who's complete, <laughs> right? Uh, for, whom, for whom there's just one way. There can never be one way. I learned this the hard way. When a, when a young uh, student in my class, I taught high school, <laughs> and I had a hell of a color purple module, mind you. I mean, I was a, you know, I mean, I was a womanist at the time, dating a woman who taught me that term. <laughs> and, and, um, and, and I was doing my thing, um, and this young woman stood up and she said, Mr. Mitchell, you talk a good game, but it's been a, a month since woman's read aloud or had a question answered in this class. And, and, you know, and I'm like, okay, I'm a young teacher and, and I didn't quite click with uh, the young women in my class anyway. And I knew that, you know, at the time. And I'm thinking, here's another instance where they, you know, and I started thinking to myself, okay, when was it? And so I asked the class, I said, Sean, that can't be true, right? Who, who was the last woman to ask a question and get a get a chance to read. And we read every day in my classes. Nobody could remember. And here I am thinking that I'm the shit about this work, right? I'm, I'm Mr. Equity. I'm Mr. You know, uh, uh, inclusive. And, and I was wrong. I was not. Um, I was too into my module to pay attention 
to what actually was happening among the, the young people in my classroom. And it was devastating. I even uh, thought I would quit teaching behind it. You know, um, and I went to my Mr. Teacher and I said, Jenny, this thing happened in my class. Um, and she goes, of course it happened. And laid it all out for me, right? And it wasn't just this class. Um, and so, you know, it was clear unconscious bias is real. Um, and just because you have black skin doesn't mean it's not real for you, right? Um, and I had to create a system because I couldn't trust myself, right? So I had to create a system. That's the pivotal work uh, that's crystallized in this book. These teachers and leaders, they're creating systems that enable themselves and others to come to the equity work in an authentic and powerful way. Um, and then it inherently makes it more sustainable as well. That was a very powerful anecdote that you just shared, so thank you for that, that vulnerability. Questions? I told y'all this was coming. Yes. All right, I have one, but I feel like it's a little boring. It's okay. But I'm not... I'm not a teacher. Mm -hmm. I'm not even one in one of these organizations that are supporting teachers. But I do feel like I have a lot of skills and resources that could be helpful. You said at the end of each chapter, you've got questions and, and point people towards resources. Mm -hmm. What was missing? Like, what, did, what were the resources you wish you could have pointed people that don't exist? That's a great question. That's not boring. <laughs> Provocative. I love it. Don't self-edit, sister. Okay. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was a great question. That's a great question. What, what, um, we have to probably think of specific factors. So, so okay, there's a, there's a running theme of like the teams in the book having complementary skill sets. So you have you know somebody who's really talented at breaking down data in a way teachers can understand. You have somebody else who's like the community whisperer. You have somebody else who's really great at interpersonal dynamics and managing teams. And I don't, I, I personally don't see schools, for the most part, understanding that sort of complementarity well. Um, and we don't really point any, I, I think there's like a missing piece here of sort of identifying what those characteristics are of successful teams that is not really germane to the field that a lot of other fields do as a matter of course. So that's one thing where I think if you're yeah. sort of coming from outside the classroom and you have something to lend, that's a place where I think it would be nice to have more. I've got two quick answers to that. I think, I think um, one of the things I learned closing schools um, in Prince George's County, Maryland, um, is that they're more than just schools. Um, that they're sort of robust hubs of, of community health and wellness. Um, and, uh, and I don't think we understand them as such. Now, coming off the COVID, you would think we would, right? Because I mean, they, they, they basically saved our hash, right? But folks aren't reflecting on that. They're basically, you know, uh, looking at the test score data and saying that it was just another mechanism for failure, right? Um, and so what's missing is really the, an understanding of the, of the role schools play in that more robust, more dynamic, more 
um, collaborative community um, space. And some of the community schools work is getting at that, but it's, but it's facing inward to the school. What I'm talking about is the role the school plays out around it, um, in the community around it. Um, and I learned that the hard way because we closed a bunch of schools and then I went and visited years later after I'm no longer in a district and all kinds of awful things are going on in and around those buildings. And I'm like, oh my God, this wasn't just about, <laughs> you know, schools and enrollment. This is, you know, and I, I sort of got it, you know, after the fact. The other thing that's not in the book that would be in the next book or the book that someone else here is writing um, is, is the power of networks. Right? So networks appear in the book, community, you know, bringing people together, working together across uh, contexts and other pieces. But the, but the mechanism itself and its power to, to be a force multiplier um, for improvement you know, uh, as, a, as a device isn't something that we tackle uh, directly um, in the book. And I think it will be really powerful for uh, maybe my brother who leads CORE back there. <laughs> Um, uh, can't can produce the book to do. <laughs> Great, thank you. Okay, more questions? Jill. Was there a theme that emerged that surprised you that you were not expecting to have surface in the book? Can I talk about food? <laughs> there is a lot of talk about food in the book. That is true. <laughs> um, after reading it like it's fourth or fifth time, it hit me that every freaking scenario had food in it. <laughs> and, and then I talked to staff and they're like, of course. I mean, that's why I have a, a bag of Hershey's Kisses everywhere I go in schools and districts. Um, and so I talked to Justin. I said, Justin, what's going on with this theme of food? And, um, and he, he basically you know, characterized for me that your staff have figured out that, that food <laughs> is a lubricant for social relationship building, right? Um, and that the place so is booze, but, but right. food, food is a little more acceptable in schools. Right, and that, um, and that eating together, right, um, uh, often became the, the, the way in which um, teams can step outside of their current context and paradigms and have conversations that they wouldn't be able to have inside. Um, and, so, and so a theme that surprised me in the book that, then, that I didn't even know about as CEO, but that all my, t all my team members were like, no, duh. <laughs> um, is the power of food. I remember there's a, t there's a chapter that's pretty much about tacos, basically. Tacos al cuñado. What was it? Grand Rapids, Michigan. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. Any other themes that, any other themes or anything else that popped up that surprised you? So, one thing that didn't surprise me, but I don't know if surprise is the right word. We were able to find educators in every community who represented very different identities in that in pretty much every place you had folks working across lines of difference as educators to drive the work. And that was like a pleasant surprise for me. Um, even, I mean, the, probably the only example that doesn't really fit that is the Michigan word. You have a 
almost entirely white workforce and um, a predominantly Latinx and, and black student body. Um, but in almost every other case, you had a very diverse group of leaders and teachers. Um, and that was encouraging and surprising, that level of sort of intra-team um, diversity. I would say uh, something that surprised me was how difficult it was to find the right lens to tell the Mississippi Delta story. Uh, yeah. Right. Because because the talking about race and and its role in the patterns that are that are present in the work down there um, for people of color down there is a really challenging yeah. thing to do. Yeah, I basically wrote two chapters that had no, that look almost nothing like what ended up in the book just because I was so lost. Because I, we were trying to connect the dots between you know. Um, pre-Civil War social structures in Mississippi with the post-war Jim Crow sharecropping and contemporary organization of cities and towns, which is not so different from a wealth and power standpoint than you had um, in, uh, in the you know, early 20th century. And folks on the ground were not enthusiastic about the level of truth-telling we were doing about that. Um, and I found myself just candidly, right? Was this being recorded? It yes. is. It is. Okay. <laughs> candidly, I found myself in conversations across difference um, as a white man with black folks who were saying, like, this is too much about racism. And that was surprising. And also, I should know better, right? Than to think that I'm not going to step in it trying to tell someone else's story in the American Deep South as a white boy from New Jersey, so. It is pretty astounding how, how pervasive um, the racial divides are down there. Um, when the white citizens councils opted out of the public schools after Brown versus Board, they're still out of the public schools. They're just not in them um, in large measure, yet the power systems remain um, the same systems uh, and the same structures. And so it's a really challenging conception um, because the leaders of the schools and districts are all people of color now, right? Yet the context in which they have to do their work and the resources with which they have to do them, and in some places, even the places that's accessible to them to do the work, <laughs> is all implicated by this you know, uh, white hegemonic infrastructure. Um, and they don't like to have to face that directly and to talk about it directly. It's, in, it's exceedingly uncomfortable. I mean, it really, really is. I mean, to put a fine point on it, there's a story in the book, and I'll just tell a short version of it really quickly. Indianola, Mississippi is the, is the district where the city we focus on. It's in the Delta. And I mean, the history there is so intensely rich, and, and we had to, I had, you know, to strip out 40 pages that I overwrote because it was like, just what are you doing? <laughs> it's too much. But um, the... So the citizens councils, which were like the uptown clan, basically for folks who aren't familiar, they they raised money explicitly to create segregated schools. They you know existed until very recently. The the schools still exist. The academies, the segregation academies, many of them still exist, including the one in Indianola, Mississippi. The first citizens council ever was in Indianola, and so this is like this is the history of this town. Derek sent me a bunch of agendas from meetings 
and we're, I'm like looking through these agendas and I'm like looking at the sort of like, you know, when this meeting was held, I'm like cross-referencing, I'm like, did this meeting, I'm trying to actually be true to like when things happen. And one meeting says it took place at the Charles Cap Center. And I'm like, why is that name so familiar? Charles Cap, where have I heard that name before? And I just Google it and it's like, former president of a citizen's council and Mississippi state legislator. The, the, the place, the community college where they were holding the meetings is named after the head of a white supremacist organization. Still, today, it's like, so, you know, I, it's like, it, those things, and, and that, but like, when I asked folks, like, when I asked people in Mississippi, like, what's your reaction to that? And they're like, like, life? <laughs> like, like, what do you want me to say? Okay, great. I was going to say we have time for one more question, and there you are. A little Oprah thing. I kind of like doing this. Hello. Um, my question is about Lens. Does the book, it's a two-part question, does the book feature a lens of a black male instructional leader? And does the book balance stories about cultural systems and instruction? Yeah, they're, they're, actually a a big one. they're actually a couple. Um, uh, there's a school in the Bay Area that's featured in the book where the leader is a man of color um, who... He's a black man. Um, who has a kind of, of a cathartic moment where he, he realizes that much of his career he's been used by principals as the heavy right, as the discipline dean or the, the culture guy. And he's like, I mean, I'm a mathematics expert. <laughs> Why am I always, the, you know, the dude to, to, to chase after truants and, 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 and related pieces? Um, and he becomes the principal of his, of his school and, and, and completely shifts the, the entire instructional paradigm to make it more child-centered. Because he was like, the one thing we haven't done in my entire time here is listen to our students about what their needs are. Um, and so he, and, but yeah, he, this idea of, of, uh, of you know, shifting from being about the culture and the, the space to actually also being um, focused on and, and committed to the instructional work is, is, is a key theme. Um, there's also a district leader um, in the uh, Philadelphia, Philadelphia community who had a similar kind of experience where um, what's expected of him, um, I think he even used the term overseer at one point in the conversation, <laughs> um, where, where you know, there's so few resources provided to him that help schools improve that all he could really do is hold people accountable, right? Just, just you know, look at the data and say you're not, you're not meeting needs. Um, and he just got tired of that. Um, and said, okay, so you know, what else can I do? How can I be of value and of service? And, and his strategy was to find the, blind, the, the, the bright spots and to amplify them across this network, right? Um, and so those are two examples where you, 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 uh, leaders have, have gone from the transactional, right, the, the, the accountability, quote unquote, um, sort of frame, um, to shift into the more proactive, you know, productive, more effective, and instructionally based um, foci in their work. There, every every two chapter, so like Derek mentioned, you have these two chapter arcs, and then there's like a coda in the final chapter for every one of the stories, and they're all rooted in like a deep instructional problem of practice, basically, mostly literacy, um, and um, and so interestingly, when we sent out like initial 
versions of the book to educators to look at, there were like a bunch of middle school and high school history teachers who were like, there's so much like, like all of this like instructional stuff and like I really love the sort of cultural aspects of it. And then there were these like science teachers who were like, what is all this race stuff? Like, you know, like, and so, so, you know, so it's interesting. So, so I think, you know, if you're going, if you're like going, there's, there's just, I, the point is there's a lot of instruction in here. Um, although it is not sort of a book about classroom instruction necessarily. And there's like a lot of like very explicit discussion of instructional techniques. Um, because every, you know, all of the adaptive stuff we're talking about is anchored and trying to solve for data-driven or data-informed educational practice. But at the same time, the, that work is couched in a context that, that helps the readers understand the choices that leaders and teachers in those schools really have. Right beyond what we think up here, they should have it. Let's, it really helps you understand where they're coming from, the context which they have to be effective, and the resources and challenges that they have in trying to do it. And so, and that often is that culture piece, right? The whole idea that you can't even, you know, talk about race. Or, in fact, we had a, a, a training session in in, the, in Michigan where we were talking about equity, and halfway through, a teacher raised his hand and said, I thought this was about schools. Why are we talking about home loans? Right. Uh, and, and that was a great learning for us at Partners because we're coming from California with this privileged set of <laughs> language for how we talk about what we do that simply wasn't in general parlance you know, in that part of the world. Um, and we're like, oh, roll back. <laughs> you know, roll back. <laughs> you know, as, Let's find the words that have meaning, you know, here in order to get the work done. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to move us into our, our closing thoughts. I'm happy to give each of you two, three minutes, whatever you need, to just share whatever it is you haven't shared yet uh, that you want folks to, to take away from this conversation, from the book. It's up to you. I'll start. I, um, I say this in the book, and, I'll, and I still believe it in my soul, um, that teachers are the most untapped resource for transformational change for our country um, that there is. I mean, they outnumber police, firemen, social workers, you know, um, combined. They're also either in community with, or they should be in community with, everybody who reaches and touches our children. Right, so, we, so for those two factors alone, they are a, a, an, an an extraordinarily potentially powerful um, uh, agency for how we can produce the country that we all aspire for us to have. And we have to get out of the political paradigm and into the actual work of, of, of becoming the America we, we imagine for ourselves. And they are, I think, the best kept, um, uh, best positioned to accelerate that work going forward. But they have to be empowered to. They have to be inspired to. Um, and the book is, is, is in part an effort to do that. Um, two very personal things. Um, my grandmother used to tell a story where she took me on vacation once and I sat in the hotel room the whole time and read books. And she asked me if I wanted to go outside and I was like, books are my life, Bobby. I don't know why I do that. This is the first book I've ever written and I'm just really grateful to the team at Partners and Derek for um, trusting me with this story. So thank you for that. Um, Second, um, you opened the door for this, so I'm gonna do it. Um, I, you know, in America, we have like 
this abolitionist tradition, um, which was a conspiracy against the federal government that was waged by people working across lines of racial difference to dismantle a system that was oppressive and it still, in many cases, lives on today. And I did want to situate teachers in that tradition because um, we are, like, let's, like, like I said, the teaching workforce is predominantly white and for it, will, it has been that way for a very long time and um, for better or worse, like, that's the world we're dealing with and we need people who identify as white to sort of see themselves as a part of that. Um, and so I hope that um, in telling the stories of all kinds of folks, including white folks, um, that folks can see themselves as part of a liberatory tradition and, and embrace that as an identity. Um, because uh, one of the, I think, big challenges with the you know, world we're in right now is that absent, Ziamata in the last session talked about um, sort of not replacing dominance and supremacy with other forms of dominance and supremacy and having radical humanity um, as, a, as, as the only uh, a replacement for that. And, and that's going to require people to see themselves differently. Um, and so I'm hoping that um, if we take the dominance and supremacy and oppression out of the world, we need to give people something else to, to latch onto. Wonderful. All right. Well, I want to thank Derek and his team, many of whom are here in the room, partners, folks. <laughs> Thank you all for having the courage to imagine that a book like this could exist. And I want to thank Justin for bringing it into existence in such a beautiful way. Um, and I want to thank both of them for being my friends and fellow change agents in this work. Um, and I want to thank all of you for joining us and spending this hour that just flew by with us today. Hi Tech High Unboxed is hosted and edited by me, Alec Patton. Our theme music is by Brother Herschel. Huge thanks to Jennifer Husbands, Derek Mitchell, and Justin Cohen. This is part of a series of three episodes from the Gates Foundation Network for School Improvement Fall 2022 Community of Practice event. You can also find recordings of all the Den Talks at the event on the High Tech High Unboxed YouTube channel. There's a link to that in our show notes. Thanks for listening.